For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with, it, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are, were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it le- any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may may have the same care for one another." If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Well, good morning, Covenant Church. We are going to kick things off just a little bit different this morning than we normally do. I'm going to start out with a little bit of pop culture trivia and find out how savvy you guys are. I'm going to play a clip here. And let's see if you guys know what movie this comes from. Go ahead and roll the clip, guys. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Now, who here, who knows what movie that comes from? Okay. I don't feel, well, you know, it's a small percentage of people. I'm a little bit surprised. Another hint here. He's the same guy who said, my name is Inigo Montoya. You kill my father, prepare to die. Okay, so you guys know this, right? Our wonderful word this morning is church, and I can't help but think of that movie line when I hear other Christians sometimes use that word church. For example, I've heard this before. Me and my friend, we're just going to go over to Starbucks this morning on Sunday, share a few Bible verses, pray, and we're going to do church that way. Or this one, you know, a little tired this morning, going to keep my pajamas on, I'm going to sit on the couch with my Cocoa Puffs, and I'm going to do church online. And I want to say to those folks, you keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. But, okay, for those of you guys who are online, I know I can feel the cursor going up to that X. (laughs) Don't close the browser just yet. Don't close it just yet. I mean, there are definitely reasons to have a virtual streaming of our church service that we've made use of, obviously, during the pandemic and for our homebound saints. So I hope you're going to stick with me as we unpack this word church and see what the Bible says about it. Stick with me, and you're going to see that a churchless Christian, the idea of that, well, it's just inconceivable. You're welcome. You're welcome. 
All right, but first, before we go into chapter 12, we need to, to get a little bit of the context. And to do that, we need to go into chapter 1. And I don't have the clicker, gentlemen, so go ahead um, and advance it. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And so right away, right away, you can see that Paul is writing to a specific church, the church in Corinth, okay? Yes, he's writing to believers everywhere, but you're going to see as you look at the book of 1 Corinthians that he's addressing specific problems in that church. And we know from Paul's other letters that he wrote to other churches, right? He wrote the church to the church at Thessalonica. He wrote to the churches in Galatia. So he's not writing specifically to you and your buddy there at Starbucks, okay? Now we're going to jump in. We're going from pop culture, fasten your seatbelt. You know, I'm going to get a little technical for a little while, and hopefully you guys are not going to zone out on me. So if you've got coffee, take a swig of that. We're going to look at a little bit of etymology, a little bit of linguistics, because we need to understand this word church when it comes to the Bible. That word church is ecclesia, Okay? And if we look at the root word construction, ek and kaleo, ek means out, kaleo means called ones. You can get this definition, called out ones, called out ones, okay? And many of you Christians, you might have heard that definition before, but it's not the complete picture. In fact, in a lot of times, it's not really used that way, okay? So what's more important is that we look and see what the early church, when they heard that word used by Paul, what did they understand that word to mean? And it's up there on the screen for you. Luo Nida in their Greek-English lexicon puts it this way. It's a congregation of Christians implying interacting membership. The term ecclesia was in common usage for several hundred years before the Christian era and was used to refer to assembly of persons constituted by well-defined membership. Well-defined membership, Okay. So this is what they're saying. Before this idea that you and I have about church came to be, Paul was using a word that they understood already to mean the assembly of persons, the public assembly of persons, okay? And then it took on more and more meaning. I'm going to take it one step further now. In the Septuagint, which some of you may know, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, Okay, I'm getting a little technical here. But realize this, in the early church, Greek was the common language, right? In the Hebrews, most of them, there was a lot of them, they didn't speak Hebrew. They didn't read it. And so their Bible was translated into Greek. And the interesting thing about this is wherever the word assembly or assemble was in the Old Testament, predominantly, that word kahal in the Hebrew is translated to ekklesia in the Greek. So you get what I'm saying here? Assembly, for them, meant ecclesia, which means, in the English, church, from which we get the assembly of God's people. And so church, as we know it, most of the times in the New Testament is talking about something very specific, is talking about what we're doing right here, right now. We're assembling as a congregation of believers. It's public, it's formal in nature, and it does contain an idea of commitment. And dare I say this and go out on a limb and say that it contains the idea of organization 
and institution. And for the young folks here this morning, I know those are bad, bad words for us, right? I mean, you guys have grown up looking at the government. Uh, You've looked at large corporations. You've even looked at, sadly, the church erode its credibility. But I'm here to tell you this morning that organization, institution, with the church, that's something that's consistent with the scriptures. We only have to look a little bit further in Corinthians and see that Paul was giving instruction. He was giving rules to the church, right? He's giving rules on how to do the Lord's Supper. He's giving rules of how to behave in a worship service. That sounds like a little bit of form and organization. And if we look at Timothy and we look at the letter to Titus, we see even more organization and structure, right? We see him saying to Titus, set in order what remains. Appoint elders in every city. And he's talking to Timothy. He's telling him how to raise up these elders and deacons, these officers in the church. He's instructing them, giving rules on what to do with the widows. And so you can't get around the fact in the New Testament, in many of the letters, there's specific instruction, there's specific organization to the church. And so we shouldn't reject that in favor of something more organic or spiritual. Scripture doesn't teach this concept that it just, I just need myself and a Bible and a buddy, me and Jesus, and we are the church. Okay. Now, the scriptures uses church in a second way. First way, very specific. The second way, only 20% of the time is it used this way, but it's used in what we call the invisible church. Theologians call it the invisible church. It's, it's the people of God everywhere throughout all the ages. It's the elect of God, God's chosen people. That's the invisible church. And so it's used that way in Scripture. It's kind of abstract, right? But then we have this other definition of an assembly, something very concrete, very tangible. So I want to put before you this takeaway truth this morning, that the visible, practical, and tangible expression of the church is found in the local assembly of believers, the local assembly of believers, okay? And so this, I think, what's going on in our modern culture is this, at least part of the error that's happening is Christians are latching on to this idea, a biblical idea of the invisible church, and they're beginning to ignore the idea of the visible. They're latching on to the abstract, they're beginning to, to do away with the practical, but it's a both and that we see in Scripture. We see both in Scripture, and we have to hold those two together that we are the called out, assembled ones of God. And so you and your buddy, when you're there at Starbucks, yes, you are the church of God. Yes, you are the invisible church of God. You, ha- you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? And when you're on your couch eating your Cocoa Puffs in your pajamas, you can worship God, praise God, you can do that, and you can do that by virtual stream. You can worship God anywhere. You know, the church is not the building, You can worship him anywhere, but that's the invisible church, and it's ignoring the fullness and the expression of the practical, the tangible, and that is the visible church that I want to talk about this morning. So when we go into chapter 12, just keep that 
in mind, and we're going to look at some specific things, three things about this local church. We're going to look at its diversity, we're going to look at its interdependence, and its unity, okay? And so the first thing, it's diversity in verses 4, 12, and 13. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And so you see in just these few verses here the diversity of the church. You see that they've got all sorts of spiritual gifts. In fact, in chapter 1, Paul says that they didn't lack anything. I mean, they had prophets, they had preachers and teachers and tongues and healings. They had everything. But this book was written to guide them and instruct them in how to use it properly. But we can't miss the fact that this was a very diverse church. They were diverse in ethnicity and in race. And maybe a broader category would be to say that they were diverse in culture, okay? Now imagine this. I think in here in the West, we think, man, the church is really, really divided. But you've got to imagine what it would be like to put Jews and Gentiles together in the same assembly, okay? These are people, they didn't even eat the same thing. They don't behave the same way. They don't have the same customs. They don't have the same values. Think about philosophically, the, you know, growing up as a Gentile, being schooled in the Greek way of thinking versus growing up as a Hebrew. And what about politically? I mean, we think the church is divided between red state and blue state, but imagine this, you know, you've got the Jews there who are kind of in captivity, right? You know, their land has been taken and, and dominated by the Romans. I mean, what kind of political you know, strife would they have in that kind of congregation, right? So they had that kind of diversity. And then also we see slaves and free. We see slaves and free. You know, that, that speaks to social status. That speaks to economic status. And so the bottom line is the church is a hot mess of diversity. It's a hot mess. It, it is. It is. At least the first, you know, in 1 Corinthians it was. And, and then let me ask this question. Did it work well? Did it function well? Well, if you've read the, the, the books, you know that it, it did. I mean, it didn't function well at all. I mean, they had all sorts of problems. They had divisions. They had factions. They had sexual immorality. They had members filing lawsuits against other members. They had, I mean, they had poor leadership. I mean, they're, they're having to be instructed on how to keep control of their worship service. They're being instructed on how to do the Lord's Supper properly. So they had all sorts of dysfunction, okay? And so you and me, we're kind of the modern Christian. We're schooled in our Bible. We, you know, we've got it all figured out. We know what a good church looks like. If we would have entered into that Corinthian church, we would have took one foot, stepped in, and said, nope. <laughs> that's not the church for me. That church is a mess. And yet that's the beloved Corinthian church that Paul is writing to. It's no reason to give up on the church because it is dysfunctional. It's not an excuse. You know, there's part of that, that feeling that we have that I think is good, right? Because we all long 
for that perfect church. We all long for that ideal. And we want to see it here. We do. We want to see his kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. And when we walk into any church, we don't see that. Okay? But don't go from church to church to church to church. Oh, I don't like the music. I don't like the, how that guy played the drums. Oh, that, the pastor said something that I don't agree with. Oh, this, that, and the other. That person, you know. You're never going to find the perfect church here on earth And I want to caution you about this, bringing your consumer culture to the church, okay? What do I mean by that? You know, we don't go out to eat anymore without pulling out our phones and looking at Yelp. Okay, four stars, we're going there. Anything below four stars? We don't, no. You know, we research everything, right? Amazon, you know, Amazon purchases. We read every one of the thousand reviews, unfortunately, and then we... uh, We only buy something if it's heavily rated, right? Think about this. What would happen if we had the internet back in the Corinthian day and they had Google reviews for the church at Corinth? I mean, it would be horrible. It would be horrible. They would probably have a half star rating. Don't give up on the church. It's full of messy people, diverse people. Well, Jerry shared this beautiful scripture. I want to share it uh, this morning, Revelation chapter 7. It's the church of the future. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God and to him who sits on the throne and to The Lamb, Jesus the Lamb, has purchased every type of person with his precious blood. We all long for that. You know, my good friend Mark Diener, many of you know that he's a a woodworker, a craftsman. Um, If you've been following him on Facebook, you will have seen those wonderful fused glass Uh, pieces that he's worked on, Uh, but he's also worked on stained glass, and go ahead and put up the picture of of their front door. Now this, brothers and sisters, is the Diener front door. (laughs) Yeah, in all its glory. Um, The point is this, look at all the shapes of the stained glass. Look at all the sizes. Look at all the colors that are being used. They reflect beauty. And glory, they say something about its creator. They say something about his wisdom, his creativity, the power to create that out of nothing. Now, if Mark decided instead to do this for his stained glass, if he decided to just use, I'm going to use all squares. I'm going to use all squares of the same size and one color. Would it be the thing that it is that we see? No. No. In fact, Andrea would say, what is that? (laughs) Yeah, a second grader could have done that, maybe. Um, No. But that's the, the beautiful picture that we have of our diversity, that God is knitting us together to be a beautiful picture and to glorify him. Okay? Don't use our diversity, the messiness of it, as a means of division, as a means to disengage from church. And so what? 
So what? Let me, there's so much that you can draw from this. I want to I give you guys this. Our diversity is necessary for our own sanctification. It's necessary for our own sanctification. Can you really grow if you only surround yourself with people who look like you, think like you, talk like you, eat like you, walk like you, and you're never, ever challenged? You can't. You can't. And some people have disengaged with church because they don't want to be around certain people because, okay, that person sinned against me. Oh, that person annoys me. And it's easier to not be here. It's easier to leave quickly and get out of the way. But I'm calling you to engage, to press into the messiness, and that God will use that to sanctify you. And that diversity will challenge you to grow in the gospel of grace. Well, secondly, I want to look at the church's interdependence. We see that in verses 14 through 21 and 26. Let me read it for you. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if an ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Brothers and sisters, we are independent. We are an organism that is interdependent, dependent one upon each other. We all need each other. We all belong. We are all indispensable. And Paul uses this great metaphor of the body. You can't say, well, you know, today I don't need my hand. It's going to get rid of that. You know, or we're just all going to be feet. You know, imagine a body with all feet. That just doesn't work. It's like an orchestra with only drummers. It doesn't work. Everyone here is indispensable. And for this body, for Covenant Church to function properly, we need all of you. Especially, especially those that we, in human terms, in our flesh... We consider weak or without honor, okay? And so, I mean, there's many ways we can apply this. And I think we have the tendency in our hearts to look at some people and say, well, that person can't serve. That, how is that person really helping the body, you know? But God places, you know, the scripture said that God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. And suppose those people are there for our sanctification. Suppose those people are there to impact the ethos, the very heart of a church, allowing them to slow down, allowing them to take time, allowing them to adorn and beautify the gospel that we so easily preach. 
Everyone is indispensable. And we're so interwoven together that we suffer and we celebrate together. You know, I, I find it interesting that I've been having low back pain just like Jerry. I was thinking a week ago that, man, I'm going to need that chair. Um, thank God that I can stand up and walk. But, you know, when, when, when part of your body is hurting, guess what? It impacts your feet, your, your hand. I mean, it impacts your ability to think. That's what Paul is getting at here. When one of us is suffering, we all suffer together. That's how interwoven, how interdependent we are. Well, lastly, I want to look at the church's unity. And there's, you can see this in a couple places in the scripture. Uh, I want to draw your attention to, to verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. The church is one in Christ. He calls us the special thing. He calls us his body. And though we are this hot mess of diversity, though we're people from all over with different cultures and subcultures, we have the rich and the poor, we're all one in him. In fact, he's getting at something deep here. We are joined inseparably to him. We're joined to Christ. We're in union with Christ. And we praise God for that. But also, we're joined to each other. And then you might grumble just a little bit about that, but that's the reality we are joined inseparably together as one body. And so that person that annoys you, that person that you're not thinking is, you know, worth so much, or that person that you want to avoid, a person that has even sinned against you, we're joined together intimately. And Paul uses another metaphor for the church, and he uses this. He uses marriage. Listen to this from Ephesians 5. For no one has ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says this, this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. We are intimately joined together. We're in this together. We are a family. We're a family. We're a package deal. And when you come to Christ, you get all of us, all the messiness. And this, this union, this mystical union that he's talking about, and you know this is a deep, deep idea because Paul has to use so many metaphors to describe it, right? The body, right? Marriage, the bride, and whatnot. It's so real that Paul can exclaim this in Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And brothers and sisters, this is the great truth. In our union, in this intimate union with Christ, this is where our salvation lies. Right? Being joined to him, you realize this. That's how your sins are taken and nailed to the cross. Jesus takes them on. You're, you're so intimately in, enmeshed with him in this mystical way, just like a man and a wife. And his perfect righteous, righteousness that he earned by living the perfect life, somehow 
he clothes us without. We, we look righteous before God because of that. We have died. That's what Paul says. We have died. That's how, that's how close this union is. We have died and our life is hidden mystically in Christ. And when God looks at us, he sees his son Jesus. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. And Lord, this is our gospel motivation. This is our incentive, okay? Why would you want to engage in a Corinthian-type church? Why would you want to engage in this organization that, why not just, yeah, hide out and wait for that future perfect church? This is the motivation for you. That Jesus, when he looked at you, he saw all your sin against him. He saw all your personality flaws and all your brokenness and all your sadness and all your baggage. And then he brings you into intimate union with himself. He joins himself to you. He marries you. You and I, we would never marry anyone who has sinned so greatly against us. So much baggage, so much personality flaws, all that. Well, if, we, if we saw that person as Christ sees us, we would not join ourselves to that. But that's what Christ does for us. That's our gospel motivation. Any other motivation? If you've been coming to church just to, just to come to church to be seen, to be accepted by other people, or because society says you, you should do that, which it doesn't say that anymore. Used to one day. Um, or if you do it to be accepted by God, that's just legalism. That's just moralism. No, you're coming to church because you are accepted, because you have been joined to Christ and you've been joined to each other. No other motivation will do. And so I hope you see this morning that the church, it is a beautiful, beautiful, wise, glorious mess. It is a mess. But it's the bride of Christ that he is making beautiful. He is making it new. And yes, we can look at it. It has stains. It has spots. It has wrinkles. It has warts. Christ is making it new. And so I urge you this morning, commit to the church. Don't be part of the, uh, the statistic that we see that, you know, a third, third of the church is not coming back after COVID. Or that... Christians today, it's normal for us to, to only go to church half of the time or less. That's not what we see in the scriptures. And if you're here this morning, you, you have the courage, you're still seeking to know what Christ, who is he? What is this about? And you have all these hangups about church and you took the risk to come here. I get it. I get it. The church doesn't have credibility. And so I'm just pulling back, look behind the curtain and see this. That this is the church of the Bible. We are diverse. We are a mess. But that's what God uses to sanctify us. And I urge you to join in and see what Christ has done for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, so good to be in the assembly, the kahal, the ecclesia of God this morning. There's something special when we assemble before the Lord. There's something powerful about it. Your spirit is here and you use it. 
And Father, many times for us, it is uncomfortable for us to be here. We don't want to be here. It's easier to stay home. It's easier to disengage. It's easier to think that true spirituality is organic and is without structure. But Lord, you call us to this beautiful, hot mess, this church. You call us to it for your glory, for us to be sanctified and beautified and made more like the bride you want us to be. And so we pray this morning, you get all the glory that you revive your church. You send your spirit and wake us up. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.